Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 12th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A team of applicant attorneys prevailed in a malpractice claim filed by their client over the provisions of a compromise and release. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Janet Tigwell versus David E. Gentry, a professional corporation. In September 2005, Tigwell was represented by the Hollins Schechter Law Firm and filed a workers' compensation claim against Becton Dixon and Company. When she hired Holland Schechter, Tigwell informed the firm she also intended to file an age discrimination claim against Becton using another law firm she had already hired. Holland Schechter hired attorney David E. Gentry to represent Tigwell because the firm had closed its workers' compensation practice. Tigwell met with Gentry a few days after a hearing in her case to review and discuss whether she should sign the compromise and release form. Gentry advised Tigwell she must sign the compromise and release to resolve her workers' compensation claim. He also assured her it would not impact the age discrimination claim she intended to file. Tigwell also claimed that Gentry bullied her into signing the form. Using the WCAB mandatory compromise and release form, Tigwell settled her workers' compensation claim with Becton for $30,000. When Tigwell later filed her age discrimination lawsuit, Becton asserted the compromise and release as an affirmative defense, arguing that Tigwell waived her age discrimination claims by signing the form. Tigwell agreed to settle her discrimination lawsuit with Becton for what she characterized as a significant discount because the compromise and release she signed severely weakened her case. She then filed a malpractice action against Hollins, Schechter, and Gentry. The trial court granted the Hollins, Schechter, and Gentry summary judgment, finding the compromise and release agreement unambiguously settled Tigwell's workers' compensation claim only and had no impact on her age discrimination lawsuit as a matter of law. The Court of Appeal affirmed the trial a court's judgment because nothing in the compromise and release expresses an intent to resolve any claim other than Tigwell's workers' comp claim, and the compromise and release actually limited itself to claims based on Tigwell's wrist injuries only. To settle any workers' compensation case, the parties must use the compromise and release form adopted by the WCAB. The court cited the 2004 Supreme Court holding in Claxton v. Waters that held that the standard language of the preprinted form used in settling workers' comp claims releases only those claims that are within the scope of the workers' compensation system and does not apply to claims asserted in separate civil actions. After the Claxton case, the compromise and release form language was amended at the suggestion of the Supreme Court to make it even clearer that separate civil actions were not included. The form Tigwell signed included this new language. The Court of Appeal held that a claim examiner's release of a psych report to the employer was wrong, but it caused no damage. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Catherine Denise Cranford versus City of Huntington Beach. Cranford filed civil litigation against her employer and alleged she suffered workplace harassment due to her sexual orientation and retaliation by the city of Huntington Beach for having complained about the harassment. Cranford also alleged her medical privacy rights were violated by the city 
when a letter written by her psychotherapist in connection with her work comp claim was released to investigators outside the city's work comp unit. In 2007, Cranford left work on stress leave and filed a workers' comp claim. Her treating therapist, Denise Davis, sent the city's workers' compensation office a letter summarizing Cranford's treatment. The Davis letter mentioned workplace harassment due to her sexual orientation as one of the causes of her stress. Cranford then learned that the police chief obtained a copy of the Davis letter when he directed a lieutenant and a sergeant to interview Cranford about her harassment claim. Cranford's complaint contained a cause of action for improper disclosure of medical information in violation of the California Confidentiality of Medical Information Act and Labor Code Section 3762. The trial court granted the city's motion for summary adjudication on the FEHA discrimination case, and a jury found that although Cranford's medical privacy rights were violated, she was not harmed. The Court of Appeal in the unpublished opinion upheld the judgment in favor of the city. There is abundant evidence that was before the jury that the letter was re uh, released Cranford was suffering anxiety and depression and suffering stress from any number of personal factors. Virtually every personal fact discussed in the Davis letter and most of the medical information discussed in the letter had previously been disclosed by Cranford to various co-workers over the years. This evidence would allow the jury to draw the inference that the release of confidential medical information contained, contained in the Davis letter was not a substantial cause of Cranford's emotional condition. Nonetheless, the court noted that it would certainly not condone the city attorney's compromising Cranford's medical privacy by disclosing the entire Davis letter to the police chief and internal affairs investigators. The Court of Appeal ruled in a legal battle between two comp defense attorneys. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of Martin Reiner versus Cagle, Tobin, and Truce. Martin Reiner is an attorney who represented the employer, Pelican Products, in a workers' compensation action brought by one of their employees, Rosa Palafox. Attorney Sheila Kashani represented Palafox's former employer, Exact Staff, and its insurer, Commerce and Industry Insurance Company, in a separate workers' compensation action also brought by Palafox. Reiner objected to Kashini's participation at a number of hearings in Palafox's action against his client and sought to exclude her from the proceedings. His conduct led to WCAB's sanctions in the amount of $2,500 against him. After the workers' comp judge permitted Kashini to be heard in the matter, Reiner unsuccessfully sought to disqualify the judge. Reiner also asserted that Kashini made improper contact with his client in the courtroom before the hearing began and attempted to steal his client. He wanted the record to reflect that there will be a lawsuit against Ms. Kashini for tortious interference with the business relationship and that will include a lawsuit against her law firm and her clients. True to his word, Reiner brought suit against Kashini and her law firm, Kegel, Tobin, and Truce, as well as their client, Commerce and Industry Insurance, for defamation and fraud. Kashini and Kegel filed an anti-slap special motion to strike the Reiner lawsuit. 
Reiner opposed the motion on the ground that the alleged defamatory statements did not constitute protected activity because they were part of a private conversation and not comments made on the record during the work comp proceedings. The trial court granted the defendant's anti-slap motion and dismissed Reiner's lawsuit and Reiner appealed. The Court of Appeal in the unpublished opinion sustained the dismissal of Reiner's case. The legislature enacted the anti-slap statute to address the disturbing increase in lawsuits brought primarily to chill the valid exercise of the constitutional rights of freedom of speech and petition for the redress of grievances. Therefore, a cause of action which chills a defendant's right to free speech may be stricken if the challenged cause of action is one arising from a protected activity and the plaintiff lacks a probability of prevailing on his claim. A cause of action in connection with litigation may be considered protected activity under the anti-slap statute. The court concluded that Reiner's complaint stems solely from the alleged statements made by Cascini about the workers' comp proceedings and was thus a protected activity under the anti-slap statute. After reviewing the evidence submitted during the motion to strike, the Court of Appeal agreed that there was insufficient evidence of the probability that Reiner would prevail in any of his claims. The judgment in favor of Cagle, Tobin, and Truce and Cascini was therefore affirmed. An attorney has been awarded a $1.9 million fee in a workers' compensation segregation case despite a local court rule. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Oscar Huartes versus Biltright Construction. Oscar Huartes suffered a workplace injury which left him disabled and mentally incompetent. He was working on a construction project when a 2x4 joist or scaffolding member constructed by the defendant Biltright Construction gave way. Huartes fell 15 feet to a concrete floor. He was represented in his tort claim by attorney Michael Ruffian, on a 40% contingency fee basis. Two other law firms had declined to take his case because of difficulties in proving liability. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration had initially issued a report finding his employer solely at fault for the accident. The defendants also blamed Huartes in large part for his own injury. Thus, from the onset, the case was risky to handle and the prospects for recovery were not by any means certain. Huantis' claim was settled for $4,900,000 and his counsel claimed a 40% contingency fee. His counsel was able to achieve other concessions, such as the State Compensation Insurance Fund agreed to receive only 10% of the gross settlement to assign and assigned the workers' compensation lien to the plaintiff. In addition, the state fund would continue to pay workers' comp medical benefits without reduction despite the settlement with the third party. The state fund also waived its right to reimbursement for workers' compensation benefits also already paid. The attorney himself agreed to waive over $100,000 in fees advanced provided the 40% contingency fee was approved. Nonetheless, the trial court reduced the attorney's fees claim and denied all litigation costs and fees in excess of 25%, based upon a San Bernardino County Local Court Rule 1424. 
1424 appears to address the issue of reimbursing medical fees in juvenile or family law cases and is not a general provision applicable to all cases. Further, it contains no 25% cap or limitation on fees. The Court of Appeal in the unpublished case therefore reversed and awarded the 40% contingency fee. The court concluded that there was no justification or authorization in the San Bernardino County local rules to limit or cap the award of attorney fees at 25%. And now our fraud report. Although it took nine years to sentence Michael Amzi Hawley of Orange County-based SoCal Roofing Contractors, contractors throughout California are pleased that justice is finally being served. In late February, Hawley was sentenced to time in jail for multiple felony counts of insurance fraud, including failure to pay more than a half million dollars in workers' compensation insurance. The Roofing Contractors Association of California said they were encouraged by the conviction of Hawley and applauded the Orange County District Attorney's Office for seeing this case through to a successful conclusion. The association says it is sponsoring AB 2219 because this type of fraud is far too prevalent in the California roofing industry. AB 2219, if passed, will mandate that all roofing contractors must carry a valid work comp insurance policy and will require insurers to perform an annual in-person audit of the payroll records and place of business in order to ascertain the true size of a roofing company operations. The Construction Enforcement Coalition, comprised of employers, businesses, associations, and labor groups, has been encouraging state agencies to coordinate in apprehending contractors who are intentionally skirting the law. According to the Contractor State License Board, more than 50% of the roofing companies in test cases conducted in three California counties were underreporting payroll. And in medical news, a new study says that patients who undergo robot-assisted surgeries have a shorter hospital stay, a lower risk of getting a blood transfusion or dying, and a significantly higher bill. The analysis compared robotic surgery with two other techniques for performing the same sorts of surgery. Robotic surgical equipment is becoming increasingly common in U.S. operating rooms and popular with both patients and doctors. The technology replaces a surgeon's hands with ultra-precise tools at the ends of mechanical arms, all operated by the surgeon from a console. Touted as less invasive and more efficient, robotic surgeries typically use a laparoscopic or keyhole surgery approach in which tools and a tiny video camera are inserted into the patient's body through one or two small incisions. Even standard laparoscopic surgery in which the doctor works through incisions with handheld tools is known to reduce the length of pa patient hospital stays and recuperation time compared to open surgeries. The fact that robotic surgeries are costlier is also well known. Not only is the equipment expensive, ranging up to $1 million for a full system, but surgeons have to invest time in learning how to use it. To see if that extra cost comes with any benefits, researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston analyzed surgery data from a national government database. 
They found that robotic surgery had certain beneficial patient outcomes compared to open and laparoscopic procedures. And in financial news, net income at Liberty Mutual Insurance fell nearly 51% in the fourth quarter of 2011 and about 78% for the year. The results are blamed on catastrophe losses and reserve strengthening. Most of the loss is attributable to a Lloyd's syndicate causing the company to suffer $90 million in losses related to flooding in Thailand. Results included hundreds of millions in reserve strengthening. After a ground-up reserve study, Liberty Mutual strengthened asbestos-related reserves $294 million in 2011. Additionally, a re-estimation of current accident year loss reserves resulted in a net incurred loss of $121 million in the fourth quarter. Good news for the Boston-based insurer included increases of 10%, 10 10.6% and 6.8% in net written premium during the fourth quarter and year, respectively. Officials say Liberty Mutual continues to see favorable growth trends in domestic personal lines, with rate increases of more than 3% in auto and 5.5% in homeowners. In commercial lines, there is also a general trend in rate increases led by double-digit jumps in workers' compensation. Business outside the U.S. now makes up about 23% of Liberty Mutual's consolidated premium. And in other news, a 40-year-old claimant convicted of stabbing workers' compensation defense attorney Joseph Rippinger in the downtown Los Angeles district office of the WCAB has been sentenced to 11 years to life in state prison. Andre Torres, who identifies herself as a male-to-female transsexual, was convicted on February to one count of willful, deliberate, and premeditated attempted murder. In May 2010, Dorries, armed with a butcher knife, entered the Unipro Serra State Office building where the district office of the WCAB is located and wandered the halls looking for courts that were in session. Torres found the courtroom where her previous court appearance was held and sat in the chair closest to the judge's door and waited. While Torres waited, the victim, Joseph Rippinger, entered the courtroom and made a phone call. Seconds after Rippinger began speaking, stating the name of his law firm, at the onset of the call, Torres stabbed Rippinger in the back. Rippinger did not know Torres, but worked for the same firm that opposed his work comp claim. During the attack, Rippinger was able to knock the knife out of the claimant's hand, corner him, and scream for help. Another attorney rushed in and helped subdue Torres. Rippinger later underwent two surgeries. A new tool for researching and understanding the distinctions among workers' compensation laws in all U.S. states and certain Canadian provinces is now available from the International Association of Accident Boards and Commissions and the Workers' Compensation Research Institute. The tool, Workers' Compensation Laws as of January 2012, is a resource for policymakers and other stakeholders to identify the similarities and distinctions between workers' compensation regulations and benefit levels in multiple jurisdictions in effect as of January 1, 2012. In Canada and the United States, 
workers' compensation is entirely under the control of sub-national legislative bodies and administrative agencies. As a result, it is easy to misunderstand subtle differences between jurisdictional laws and regulations. This survey gives readers the ability to understand those differences. The publication is best used to understand macro-level differences and general tendencies across jurisdictions. The comparative tables presented in this report provide a reference for understanding legislative and administrative differences in workers' comp systems. The DWC, in conjunction with its vendor partners, will host the next Electronic Filing Expo in Sacramento on Thursday, April 5th. The event is free and anyone interested in e-filing or jet file is encouraged to attend. This is the sixth e-filing expo hosted by the DWC following events in Santa Ana, Los Angeles, Van Nuys, Oakland, and San Bernardino County. Electronic filing is the fastest way to get documents into EAMS, DWC's electronic case management system for the workers' comp courts. There are two ways to file electronically, e-forms and jet file. Jet file is best suited for large volume filers of the six most used court forms, while e-forms are available for all forms. The April 5th Expo will provide information about and demonstrations of both filing methods. Filers looking for faster, easier, and more cost-effective alternatives to paper forms are encouraged to attend this Electronic Filing Expo held at the Staybridge Suites located at 140 Promenade Circle in Sacramento. No registration is necessary. Filers can drop in anytime between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. The program will repeat throughout the day. And with that, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And please remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Once again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for some more news.